Well, tonight we're continuing to look at uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, and uh, we're moving into uh, chapter, the very end of chapter 14, and then into chapter 15 and 16 tonight. And again, kind of like last week, uh, this is in that section of Isaiah from chapter 13 to 23, where he is dealing with all these other nations around Judah. And almost all of them are messages of judgment that, that Isaiah is, is uh, giving. He's giving it to the people of Judah. So he's, he's letting the Israelite people know what, what God's viewpoint is on all these nations around them. And, and it's, it's really intended, I think, even though it's, it, when we read it and we study it, it comes across as very heavy because it's, it's pretty much all judgment. But if you're an Israelite and you're, you're hearing that God's going to judge Babylon, that's good news, right? Or you hear that God's going to judge Egypt or Moab, that's good news because they have been uh, your enemies at different points in history and they have mistreated you. And so that's, um, that's actually an encouragement if you're one of God's people. And uh, it kind of fits into that theme of the day of the Lord that we mentioned last time, where in the day of the Lord, it's really kind of a two-sided coin because with the day of the Lord, there is judgment, but then there's also deliverance for some. So judgment for one means deliverance for the other. And that's what's happening here is it's judgment for the enemies of God, but it'll end up being deliverance and blessing for the people of God. So tonight we're going to look at uh, three different nations that Isaiah has messages about, and two of them are, are really short. They're only about three or four verses each, and that is uh, Assyria and Philistia, and then two full chapters on Moab, uh, chapters 15 and 16. But I think we can try to summarize all three of these uh, tonight, and uh, we'll read through the passages. Again, I won't stop and comment at every place, because I think um, once you start to get the flow of what Isaiah is doing, a lot of the poetic language kind of builds on each on itself, but communicating the same overall idea. So while there's a little bit of nuance and separation between words and, and sentences, a lot of it is intended to be cumulative in its effect, just kind of building and but emphasizing the overall same point. So we're going to look at these three messages tonight. The judgment on Assyria and the judgment on Philistia, those two are at the right at the end of chapter 14. And then chapter 15 and 16 is the message about God's judgment on Moab. So let's look at Assyria. And this takes place in chapter 14, verses 24 through 27. And uh, before we read the verses, just wanted to, to think about the fact that at Isaiah's time, the, the time that Isaiah lived and he is doing his ministry, the, the nation that was the most immediate and direct threat to God's people was Assyria. And so really it's kind of striking that he just spent two chapters on Babylon and four verses on Assyria when Assyria is the one who at that moment in time is the greatest threat and the most immediate threat. And uh, some of the commentators suggested that one reason for that might be that he's already spent a good deal of time on Assyria back in chapter 10. 
and so doesn't include a lengthy um, oracle of judgment on them here. And then also, when we get to the end of this first big section of Isaiah in chapter 36 to 39, uh, he's going to deal in detail with uh, Sennacherib, who is a general of Assyria who's coming to attack Jerusalem, and how God supernaturally repels that invasion. And so he's going to spend some time, more time on Assyria later. So this is, I guess, in, in a way, kind of a summary of some, th- some things he's already said in chapter 10, and then some things he'll get to again uh, later on in chapter 36 to 39. But also, from another perspective, Assyria is the more immediate threat, but Babylon is the greater threat, if I can put it in those terms. So Assyria is more near-term to Isaiah's time, and they're, they're certainly going to threaten Judah. We see that in chapter 7 where Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and Ahaz is fearful because of this Assyrian threat. So Assyria is right there. They're on the doorstep and they're going to be a problem for Judah. But God's going to repel them. God's going to send them away. And Assyria is not going to be ultimately victorious over Jerusalem. But Babylon will be. So Assyria is the more near threat. But Babylon, a little ways down the line in the future, is going to be the more dangerous threat because they're, all, they're ultimately going to defeat Jerusalem and take their people captive back to Babylon. So that may be another reason, too, why he focused more time on Babylon in chapter 13 and most of chapter 14. So let's look at these few verses on Assyria. Verse 24 says, The Lord Almighty has sworn... Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. That's, I mean, that's a very powerful declaration of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? That, that whatever the Lord says is going to unfold. That is what's going to happen. Why is, why is he saying that here? Well, it's because Assyria thinks that whatever it plans is going to happen. Because at that particular time in history, Assyria is a huge, mighty power. And pretty much wherever they go, they're winning and they're conquering people. And so Assyria is lifted up in pride and it thinks when we make a plan to attack, it's going to succeed. When we propose something, it's going to happen. But what Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel about, about Assyria, is they can plan all that they want but God's the one whose plans ultimately succeed. I think it's Proverbs 16, 9. Uh, in a heart, a man plans his ways, but it's, it's God who directs his steps. So it, we can plan and, and prepare all that we want, but ultimately God's will is sovereign, isn't it? And, uh, and he, can, he can throw a detour into our plans. And so he says, I will crush the Assyrian in my land, On my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. Again, this goes back to earlier chapters in Isaiah where Isaiah was telling Ahaz and the people, you need to trust God. Yes, Assyria is planning to attack you, but you need to trust God. God's going to take care of this. God's going to crush Assyria and send them back. So this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over the nations. 
For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? So kind of asking rhetorical questions, but communicating the same idea as verse 24. And that is, whatever God decides to do, that's what's going to happen. And no human authority can tell God, no. No human authority can repel God's plans, what he intends to accomplish. So that's the message for Assyria. Assyria, you're prideful. You think you can do what you want, but it's actually God who can do what he wants. Then he has some words for uh, the Philistines. Chapter 14, verses 28 to 32. And uh, you all know where... uh, the the area of the Philistines is, right? Essentially, on a map, it is where Palestine is. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's been going on since the days of the judges, since the days of Joshua. So you have in the judges, the Philistines, Samson doing battle with the Philistines, in the days of David and Saul doing battle with the Philistines, Even now, here later on in Isaiah's time, he's got messages of judgment for the Philistines. And the root letters are the same as in Palestine. That that Hebrew PLS, essentially, is where we get the word Palestine from. So these are the long-lost descendants of the Palestinians, basically, the Philistines. And they live right there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And they were a thorn in Israel's side for generation after generation after generation. Now God has a message of judgment for them. This prophecy came in the year that King Ahaz died. So we've got a transition, right, from one king to another. And sometimes in the ancient world, and really at many times throughout history, if you were at odds with a kingdom, That's the perfect time to strengthen your hand is when there's a transition from one leader to another or one king to his successor. Because, you know, this this is a new leader. What's he going to do? Let's test him. Let's challenge him. There's going to be some transition here as he establishes his leadership and his administration. So this is an opportunity either to revolt if that country was more powerful or time to attack and try to take them over if you think that you could have the advantage And so the Philistines were rejoicing that Ahaz had died because this, to them, was an opportunity. But Isaiah says of them, Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting, venomous serpent. And most likely, what he's referring to here is the transition from Ahaz to Hezekiah. And the Philistines are rejoicing that Ahaz is gone, but Isaiah is saying Hezekiah is going to be stronger than even Ahaz was. And so Philistines, Hezekiah is going to be a worse enemy for you than King Ahaz was. So don't get your hopes up. Don't become all joyful. The poorest of the poor will find pasture And the needy will lie down in safety, but your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. Wail, you gate, howl, you city, melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. Who's the the invader from the north? It's Assyria. 
And so not only did Assyria pose a threat to Israel and Judah, it also posed a threat to the Philistines. And so Isaiah is saying, uh, Philistines, you're going to get your judgment at the hand of the Assyrians when they come from the north as well. And so what answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation, that is Assyria? The Lord has established Zion and in her afflicted and in her, his afflicted people will find refuge. And so basically the message is um, the Philistines were rejoicing over what seemed to be the downfall of Judah and Jerusalem. But God is saying, watch out Philistines, because it's actually going to be your downfall. And God has not forgotten about his people. And so very short message of judgment for the region of Philistia. But then most of chapter 15 and 16 is about Moab. Now, um, do you remember who the Moabites are? The Moabites are long lost, um, long distant kin to Abraham. Uh, Abraham's nephew was Lot. And do you remember what happened after Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his two daughters? Okay, Moab is one of those sons from from Lot and one of his daughters. And so they became the Moabites. So they're long distant cousins of the Israelite people. And on a map, if you were to look a map at a map of the Holy Land, if you were to find the Dead Sea, pretty much that region exactly to the right, to the east of the Dead Sea, is Moab. And there were a couple of tribes that stayed on the east side of the Jordan, a little bit north, tribes like Reuben and Gad, and I think half tribe of Manasseh. So those were on the east side of Jordan. And throughout history, that tribe of Reuben, which is the tribe of Israel, and Moab were constantly in friction with each other. And there were cities that would often pass back and forth under the control of one of those two, either Israel under the tribe of Reuben or Moab, the Moabites. So they've been a thorn in the side as well for a lot of Israel's history. And now um, Isaiah has a message for them. And in verses 1 through 9, we see kind of a, a lament. It's a, it's a song of lament, um, wailing over the, the condition of Moab that it's going to come under. And so verse 1 says, A prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Now, just to give you a heads up, in verses 1 through 9, there are a lot of place names that are, are given. And I'm not going to go into detail about where all those place names are. And one of the reasons I'm not is because, archaeologically speaking, we don't know where many of them are. So these are cities, these are places within that region of Moab to the eastern side of the Dead Sea. They existed at, you know, 25, 26, 2700 years ago, but the sands of time have covered them up and we don't know exactly where they are. They're in relatively close proximity, you know, probably 40, 50, 60 miles of each other. Um, so not very spread out, but these are different places. And I think the overall effect of naming all of these places is to show how widespread the sorrow will be across the whole land of Moab. So it's almost like as if I were to say in, 
in Washington, there's going to be wailing. And in Arizona, there's going to be crying. And in Minnesota, there's going to be gnashing of teeth. It's that kind of idea of you're, you're just spot, spotting these key places all over the map to communicate the idea that all over the whole land, it's going to be sorrow and lament. And the idea here of in a night is probably the idea of swiftness, that how quickly Moab will fall when its judgment comes. So verse 2, Debon goes up uh, to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. And that's just a symbol of shame. Um, The head shaven, the beard shaved, especially when it was against somebody's will, like as in captivity or an enslavement, it was a symbol of shame and of defeat. In the streets, they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares, they all wail, prostrate with weeping, basically falling down on their face. In sackcloth is a symbol of mourning, um, of lament. Uh, Heshbon and Elialeh cry out. Their voices are heard all the way to Jehaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry out, and their hearts are faint. So you kind of get the idea here of lament, of sorrow, of being worn out, afraid. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zoar, as far as Iglath Shelashiyah. They go up the hill to Luhith, weeping as they go. On the road to Horonaim, they lament their destruction. If you ever want to have a word pronunciation contest, here you go. Isaiah 15, verse 5. So these are all, again, these are all places in Moab, ancient Moab. One of those names you might remember uh, from the story in Genesis, Zoar, was uh, very near uh, to the place where Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And if I remember correctly, uh, I believe it was one of the places that um, uh, Lot and his daughters were attempting to flee to. Uh, Zoar, so very near in that region of the Dead Sea, close to Sodom and Gomorrah, but in that land of, of Moab. Uh, the waters of Nimrim are dried up, and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone, and nothing green is left. So you can see the idea of just total devastation. All over the country, people are wailing, people are in sorrow, nothing is left. So the wealth they have acquired and stored up, they carry away over the ravine of the poplars. Basically, this is the idea of Moab's going to be looted and all of their wealth is going to be taken across the border to other lands. Their outcry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches as far as Eglayim. Their lamentation as far as Beir Elim. Again, kind of like showing the extremes of the geography of the land and how far their sorrow is extending. The waters of Demon are full of blood, but I will bring still more upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon those who remain in the land. So just, it's a lament, it's a cry. It's a wailing over what's going to happen to the people of Moab. And then in verses 1 through 14, we see not as much a lament, but more of just a poetic description of Moab's judgment that's coming around the corner. Uh, in verses one through five, we see Moab's plea for help. 
send lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land from Salah across the desert to the mount of daughter Zion. Now, what is Isaiah doing here? Most commentators think that what Isaiah is doing is he is, in essence, giving advice prophetically to Moab when their day of disaster comes. So when Moab's day of disaster comes, Isaiah is, is essentially holding out a life rope to them and saying, in that day of disaster, send lambs as a tribute or as a gift, as a, as a peace offering, and send it to daughter Zion. Who is that? That's Jerusalem, right? So in other words, reach out to your long lost cousins, reach out to your neighbors for help in the time of trouble and send a gift of goodwill along with that request for help in time of trouble. Like fluttering birds pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. And Isaiah is basically saying here, do this for the sake of your women and children. When this day of disaster comes, send a message of help to Jerusalem and protect your weaker ones from harm. Make up your mind, Moab says, render a decision. Make your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Again, there's kind of the idea of people fleeing to Jerusalem, to Judah, to escape what's coming to Moab. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David. One who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. That's an amazing verse, isn't it? Um, essentially, what Isaiah seems to be doing here is um, to the Moabites, come and seek refuge here. And to the people of Judah, protect these refugees who come under the shadow of your wings. Why? Because there is a king who's going to arise from the line of David, who is going to seek justice and righteousness and peace in the land. Now, you might could say that's Hezekiah who takes the throne right after Ahaz. But I think it probably points to an even greater fulfillment, doesn't it? In, and like we see oftentimes in the book of Isaiah, that this one coming from the line of Jesse or the, the stump of Jesse or the line of David, it's, it's a glorious future Messiah, isn't it? And so you might could say King Hezekiah is one who's in the line of David, and he is. He's, a, he's in that Davidic dynasty. But he doesn't fully accomplish. He doesn't fully fill out what this prophecy seems to be implying. So there's one coming, Jesus, the Messiah in the line of David. So Moabites come and find refuge here because God is watching over his people and he's going to bring a deliverer to his people. But apparently based on verses six through 14, Moab doesn't listen to that appeal to come and find refuge within Judah. And so their destruction is going to happen. So we have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. 
It's a recurring theme in Isaiah, isn't it? That a lot of these, um, a lot of these nations, whether it be the real strong ones like Babylon or Assyria, we can see their pride. But even some of the smaller ones, the, the lesser powerful ones, they still put a lot of confidence in themselves, don't they? And, and think that they can figure out a way around this problem through diplomacy or through a treaty with another land or through, uh, you know, making an alliance. They, they think that they have a way figured out on their own. But God says to all of these nations, put your pride down. God's going to humble you. Therefore, the Moabites wail. They wail together for Moab, lament and grieve for the raisin cakes of Kir Hereseth. The fields of Heshbon wither, the vines of Sibma also. The rulers of the nations have trampled down the choicest vines, which once reached Jazer and spread toward the desert. Their shoots spread out and went as far as the sea. In other words, this is how great Moab was. All of this great produce, vegetation, vineyards. But when this day of devastation comes, there's going to be nothing left. So I weep as Jazer weeps for the vines of Sibma, Heshbon, and Elialeh. I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvests have been stilled. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab. Like a harp, my inmost being for Kir Hereseth. And apparently this is from Isaiah himself. Isaiah is mourning over what's going to happen to Moab. When Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes to her shrine to pray, it is to no avail. Again, why? Because they're worshiping false gods, for one. And God has determined that this is going to happen. And so no amount of intervention is going to take this from God's plan. So this is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. In other words, it's done. It's set. This is what God has determined to do. But now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised, and her survivors will be very few and feeble. Again, how is that going to unfold? Assyria. Assyria. And so all of these places that are around Israel, they're all going to fall. They're all going to fall to Assyria. And they, had, they were lifted up in pride, but Isaiah is reminding them there's no room for pride because God's judgment is coming. And so, you know, as we kind of draw this lesson to a close, you know, you ask, what in the world does this have to do with me? You know, we're talking about the, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians 2,700 years ago. What does this have to do with me? Well, one thing that is a constant is the sovereignty of God, right? So whether it be Assyria attacking Moab, 2,700 years ago, or whether it be, um, you know, China building islands in the South China Sea. Whatever it is that's happening, whether it's back then, whether it's today, God's in charge. God is sovereign overall. And God's people can trust in that. 
God's people can rest in that. And that's one of the messages of Isaiah to God's people is he's sovereign, so trust in him. So rest in him, wait for him to accomplish his purposes. And then I think another one of the overriding themes in this passage is um, the futility of human pride. And just uh, across the whole Bible, and especially in these, in these prophetic messages, how all these nations thought they could handle it themselves. And they thought they could be self-dependent. And they look for their own ways to fix things. And you think about it, we're not really much different than that. You know, the Moabites, they might have tried to, to make an alliance with Israel or Syria to, to hold off the Assyrians, and that was their plan. And they thought they could take care of it through their own ingenuity. And how many times do we think that we can fix something with our own wisdom, with our own ingenuity? And there are times we just, we just need to depend on God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. I'm not saying that we shouldn't put forth effort. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use counsel and wisdom that God has supplied. But where, where is our hope? Where is our hope? So I, I say employ all the means that God has given you, but put your ultimate hope in God to accomplish what he's going to do. So same thing. I mean, if you're sick, you know, go get some medicine. You go to a doctor, but don't put your ultimate hope in a doctor or medicine. Put your ultimate hope in God who is sovereign over that whole situation and who can heal directly or through medicine or doctors. So don't put pride in yourself and your own abilities, what you can accomplish. Because God humbles the proud, doesn't he? But he lifts up the lowly. And so come lowly, come humble before the throne of grace and find help in time of need.